HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Happy Chef Uniforms, the perfect style, whatever your recipe. Visit happychef.com to order your free 2018 catalog. Food and travel, they go hand in hand. And chances are, if you're a fan of Heritage Radio Network, you love them both. Between April 10th and 24th, we have six incredible food and travel experiences up for auction at charitybuzz.com. Go on an underground food tour of New Orleans with a rocket scientist. Get your hands on VIP passes to Feast Portland or enjoy a ranch to table experience in wine country. Four of the experiences include hotel stays at some of the most iconic properties across the country, including the newly reopened Hotel Claremont in Atlanta. Now's your chance to win the ultimate bourbon and beyond weekend in Lexington or take in a Latin food tour of New York's outer boroughs. You'll eat, drink, explore, and relax, all while supporting Heritage Radio Network. Help us keep the lights on and the mics hot. Go to heritageradionetwork.org auction and bid now. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Jason Heller and Dan Petrosky. We'll talk to Jason and Dan about wine, Cabernet, a little Larkmead, Massacan, and mostly about their project, Band of Vintners. We'll taste the Band of Vintners Consortium for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Jason Heller is a master sommelier and one of the band of vintners leading their sales effort. Jason has run wine programs for Thomas Keller and Richard Reddington. He has directed the sales effort at some of the most respected California California wineries, including Harlan, Bond, and Dana Estates. He's currently a partner at Scale Wine Group. Dan Petrosky is not your traditional wine guy. He came out of Brooklyn right where we're broadcasting from, studied at Columbia and NYU, and worked in advertising and marketing for years, including Sports Illustrated and Time. A friend hooked Dan up at a winery in Sicily, and he never looked back. He returned to the U.S. to pursue his passion for wine. He worked at Dumal, now at Larkmead Winery, founded Massacan, where he crafts white wines, and is one of the band of vintners, too. The San Francisco Chronicle named Dan Petrosky the winemaker of the year in 2017. So I guess you're the reigning champion. Um, welcome to the show, Jason and Dan. Great to have you on. Happy to be here. Thanks, Sam. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I had a chance to meet up with Dan about a week or so ago. He was in town, pretty busy. He was showcasing his wines. 
and he was basically at every restaurant in New York, and he did a little uh, talk, which we'll talk about for a second. All right, so guys, before we get into the Band of Vintners project, I just want to ask you guys a few questions about your past and present. Um, Jason, let me start with you. You are a master sommelier, correct? I am, yes. How long have you been a master sommelier? Uh, I passed the master sommelier exam in Dallas in uh, February of 2011. Okay. And was it one of those things where it took you forever to get to the end of it? Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say I went through it the quickest of anybody, but I got my intro, uh, introductory in New York, actually, right. um, in November of 2005 and passed in February of 11. So for me, it was pretty quick route through. I was able to pass the first three tests uh, on my first try and then at the master's level uh, passed tasting on my first try and then had to come back and... Uh, the service and theory portion the second time around and was able to pass those both that time around. That that is pretty quick. Now, you worked the floor at some of the best restaurants in Napa, um, but ultimately and eventually you switched to wineries and even sales. You know, what what prompted you to do that? You know, it was a a hard decision, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't miss being on the floor, but really what prompted that decision um, was my wife. Uh, she was a chef in restaurants, and we were two ships passing in a night, never seeing each other, and really just realized that, you know, there was more things important to life than being a, you know, a sommelier on the floor at that point. Right. Really, my marriage was more important and having the opportunity to see and spend more time with her. So, so moving into more of a normalized uh, schedule uh, that worked better with her schedule, uh, that as she moved into being a private chef, uh, was a lot better uh, for both of us for us, our relationship as a whole. And that's the, that was really my reason just for making that transition. So if if you want any FaceTime, it's a bad combination to be a SOM and a chef simultaneously, true? <laughs> it is, especially at the Napa Valley restaurant yeah. uh, where the hours can be uh, pretty laboriously and pretty long. Yeah. Um, and now you're doing something interesting. I want you to talk about it quickly. You're a partner at a company called Scale Wine Company. Tell me quickly uh, what that is. I am. So, uh, Scale Wine Group, what we do is uh, it's a, a partnership between myself and other masters of Wayne named uh, Desmond Eshavari and uh, Brian Lipa. And the impetus for this business was really that the three of us were all uh, director of sales and marketing or national sales managers for some really, uh, relatively well known, well funded Napa Valley wineries. Uh, I was at Donna State, uh, Des was at Realm, and uh, Brian Lipa was at Staglin. And right. what we tended to see were there were a lot of great wineries from Napa Valley and other places uh, that were not given any face time out in the market, uh, either because they were too small and didn't have the opportunity to have a national sales manager or a director of sales and marketing that could go out and travel for them, uh, or that, you know, just plain and simple, they're not Gallo, they're not Constellation, they're right. not Jackson family. They, you know, they're not getting the, the push from the distributors uh, because of the marketing dollars. So uh, that's actually founded the company with the great idea of being able to take these brands uh, that couldn't afford their own uh, person to do this for them. And by combining uh, these brands together and taking them out to the market all at once, to be able to uh, get face time for one and also be able to defray the cost back to the brand. So on top of the fact that most of these wines, because they're all great brands, had distribution they didn't have a national sales manager or, you know, one-on-one exposure. That's where you guys came in, right? That's correct, yeah. We're the, the pretty much the face of the brand out in the market, managing uh, all of their trade sales and the, uh, relationships with the distributors. It's, it's a great idea. Um, Dan. Yeah, thank you. Dan, you came out of New York, right? Brooklyn guy. Very, yeah. very untraditional path to the wine world. I've talked to a lot of people, and I wouldn't even say very few. I'd say nobody has your background. You worked in advertising and marketing for some pretty good companies. Uh, Time Warner, Sports Illustrated. Time, Sports Illustrated. Um, but I'm interested in uh, that time where I... And, and tell me the story quickly. Somebody introduced you to the idea of maybe going abroad to Sicily 
and either working uh, the harvest or visiting. F- fill that story in for me, because that was a turning point for you, true? That, was, that is actually uh, exactly true. I, my business school classmates, uh, we traveled uh, together as a group after, after we graduated in 2004, and our first stop was um, Sicily, which is one of my classmates' uh, his home for many years before moving to the United States, and came back from that trip having you know, a greater appreciation and understanding of the community, the culture, and just being the generosity of the Italians at the time and, and his family and his friends. And uh, it wasn't long after that I spoke with my mom, and she told me she was going to work till she was 70. I was 33 at the time, and I, <laughs> I said, this is, that's another 40 years I'm going to be working uh, in my life. And I couldn't believe that I didn't even live that long. So um, I said I needed to change. I needed to kind of like set a reset button and, and try to find something new in my life. And I literally just picked up the phone, called my buddy Massimo, and said, Hey, remember that winery we visited down in the southeast in Ragusa? You think I can come and just like work there for <laughs> and live in Sicily and like kind of work with them and learn more about wine? And he was like, "You're crazy. What are you thinking? No way. You don't want to do that." He was, "I left the island. You shouldn't be moving there." Wow. Um, so we joked around a little bit, and he made. What the phone year call. was that? <laughs> yeah, he made the phone call and, and called me back and said, "Don't embarrass me." That was literally the extent of the conversation. Wow. So uh, um, uh, it was about two, three months later I, uh, I moved uh, on June 1st of uh, 2005 and 2005. returned in June of 2006. So just as a side note, if I was your mom, who seems like very ambitious, I would have <laughs> taken you in the bathroom and strangled you and said four years of Columbia down the toilet. <laughs> but I guess she understood, and in the end you got it right. Um, so you go to Sicily, you get enthralled with the whole thing, you come back, and then what happens? Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't find a job. Uh, <laughs> I, literally, I was back in New York City in June of 2006. Uh, focusing on wine, though? Um, looking to try to work to transfer my skills in sales and marketing from Time and, and Sports Illustrated to a uh, sales and marketing job in the wine industry okay. in New York City. But I realized very quickly the classic corporate structure that I was working under with a number of you know, MBAs, myself included, that didn't really exist in the wine industry unless you worked at a larger, uh, a larger Fortune 500 company, a bigger distributor of brands like Diageo or, right. uh, or Treasury Constellation. And uh, I wasn't really looking for that job. I was looking for the romantic view of, of sales and marketing of a winery, you know, kind of the, the, kind of the small family estate, the things that en- engaged me as a wine drinker. Um, but I realized that those 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 brands didn't have marketing budgets, um, so it's kind of SOL for lack of a better term. <laughs> and uh, that's when I kind of called upon some friends and in California, and uh, one of them uh, was a winemaker at Anhill Farms, and invited me to come out and spend some time uh, getting to know the community. And then through through one of the partners at Anhill, I met Andy Smith, and um, that job that that became my job at uh, Dumal for the harvest. And right. 2006, and that, that was a great a full-time wine. opportunity in the cellar at Larkmead. So the Larkmead thing happened when? Uh, 2006. 2006, and you've been with them since, right? Yeah. I, I went from part-time during the harvest to full-time roughly December 06, and then you know, officially January 07. So Larkmead is one of these highly regarded Napa wines um, that has everything Napa about it but I think some of it shows some restraint, and then there's different bottlings. You can get pretty much whatever you want. But tell me if this is true. You're, you're kind of taking a new approach with the wines where you're focusing on soil diversity. Is that true? Yeah, that's, that's, well, that's Tell me true. what does that mean? And then that wasn't necessarily um, the goal. Um, I think as we expanded our, um, our understanding of the vineyard site and the diversity of our we, – we, we unveiled the diversity of the site. It gave us the opportunity when we started to, when we expanded the winery, um, to have more vessels to house more parcels. We were able to micro-ferment as opposed to kind of co-fermenting a lot of the parcels on the property. And it, it, it really introduced me to the concept of terroir as a winemaker and understanding how soil profiling has an impact, has the greatest impact on texture of a wine. And that was, uh, that was kind of eye-opening for me over the course of the, the years in which we we were kind of and, gaining and, that understanding of the site. And you um, weren't seeing much of that going on in Napa? You weren't um, sense- you, Yeah, I mean, ideally, I mean, or not, excuse me, ideally, but um, um, most 
prominently at Diamond Creek. Right. Right. He had Gravelly Meadow and Volcanic Hill. He kind of epitomized that early on. Yes, exactly. Um, But not a lot of other people did that. Um, So... You're, the wines now have more of an expression of the terroir more than ever, or you focus on that more? Yeah, we're focusing on that more, and I think part of it was uh, in, in making that transition, you needed to turn the volume down a little bit on the wines. Um, what I right. mean is turn the alcohol down a little bit right. um, and, and, and remove ourselves, extract ourselves from what has been known as a kind of a classic Napa Valley style, which is not necessarily the modern classic, which is a bigger, richer, more hedonistic, delicious drinking wine that, um, that has come to prominence in the last 20 years. Plenty of that um, available. And, right. and, I, and, and, and for me, that was, you know, in order to kind of understand terroir a little bit better at Larkmead, I needed to kind of just, just adjust, adjust the alcohol so that the wine had a little bit more expression of sight and a little less expression of, uh, of more of that above-ground terroir, which we have here in California in Right. Bucket loads called the sun right. and, and the warm weather and dry weather. Perfect for that. Um, before we jump into Band of Vintners, I, I wanted to just talk about two other things. One is Massacan. But when you were in New York, you were gracious enough to invite me to kind of a small get-together of probably the best people in the area um, in the wine business, you know, at every level, sommeliers, writers, other winemakers. Um, and you called it the future of Cabernet, and I really think your concern was, you know, what is the future of Cabernet? You're making Cabernet and all of that. Just quickly, I, I mean, if you had to boil it down, what were your, what were one or two takeaways you got from, you know, that talk with everyone's input? Um, yeah, my take, my big takeaway, I think, is that you know New York sits on its own island. Um, right. No pun intended. It's a, it, it really is an, 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 a special place for consumption. I mean, it's so diverse, it's so broad, with its uh, with its, everything from a two buck chuck to a two thousand dollar bottle uh, of luxury wine. And um, I think it's really hard to benchmark anything against New York. But it's one of those markets where it's you know the classic: if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And I think everyone wants to be there because it has such a high profile. Right. Um, and what I took away from the whole conversation was that there are still people there who are very engaged with, um, with, with Cabernet Sauvignon on a level that sometimes when you're 3,500 miles away, it may seem like the community isn't really responsive to your efforts. And I think, I think when you get down to the, the, as you said, as you said, Sam, there was great people in that room who influenced the, the, the wine trade in New York, and they all have a passion or a history with Cabernet, and I think everyone respects it. Um, I just think that, you know, over the years, we've, we've you know, not, not, not only Napa Valley, but Bordeaux has done things to, to price us out of some right. restaurant wine list, to price us out of some consumer retail, to stylistically move us in a direction that maybe took us away from, you know, the things that we all love about wine, which is that kind of soul-searching authenticity and, and, right. and, and terroir-driven aspects. And well, most, pe- was, most people I think, think of that. everyone in the room wants that back. Right. Um, but it's hard to turn that ship around. And um, so I, my takeaway is that why turn it around? Why don't we just drive right into it? <laughs> why don't we continue to, 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 to seek the kind of the, 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 what we've created, which is this kind of this, you know, this brand of Cabernet Sauvignon that, that, that is the king. That is the right. Um, and that's really where I think we, we as an audience uh, um, of, of Cabernet lovers, and, you know, let's you know, preach to the choir a little yeah, bit. I, I agree with that. Um, Jason, sit tight. I just want to talk to Dan quickly about Massacan, and then uh, I want to get heavily into uh, Band of Vintners. So, Dan, you have your own label, Massacan, M-A-S-S-I-C-A-N. You started in 2009. Um, it's pretty much all whites, Italian varietal, varietals. What, what sort of compelled you to do it that and that way? <laughs> that was um, that was really again um, goes back to Sicily and, and my time spent there and how when that I was, was living it, in huh? that, that that environment I was really a reaction to what we were consuming at the time and it was a lot of white wine when you're in the middle of an island in the Mediterranean and it's warm and it's dry and, and it's that's the way it is for six to nine months a year it's a uh, perfect white wine weather and and so when I came back to the states and and settled in in California. 
I noticed that you know it was warm, it was dry, and we were drinking a lot of red wine. Um, it didn't True. feel culturally didn't feel culturally right, um, and that was a, the impetus to it. And it was also an exercise for me to understand the wine industry. Um, I needed to understand all aspects of it, so it really just started with a business plan and to see if the if the economics made sense um, to make wine, right? Especially white wine. So California does provide the right climate for those Sicilian, not that they're only indigenous to Sicily, but for those type of grapes, you don't have much trouble growing them? Yes, California is very Mediterranean in its climate. It is. Yeah. Okay. So let's just quickly talk about some of the wines, you're ma- the grapes you're making from some of the wines, Ribola, Gialla, Tokai Fruliano, Pinot Grigio, Greco. Um, so you bottle... I don't know, four or five showings. I mean, correct me on that. And you blend different grapes in some of those. Walk me through that quickly. Yeah, that's exactly it. My goal was, my true goal was to make um, a modern day, <laughs> modern day conundrum. Um, <laughs> okay. No, I wanted, I wanted to make a, a, a single white wine blend. And the goal there was just to kind of create something unique um, to California, but also just make it something that, that touched what I was nostalgic for, which was, white wines of the Mediterranean, and I had the great access to do that with, uh, with, with, with you know, some older vines in the area that, you know, when, when I've told people what I was interested in doing and thinking about doing um, and modeling my wine off of, the, you know, some of the great wines of Friuli in the Mediterranean, and, and uh, I got access to some of these things I didn't know even existed here in California, you know, 70-year-old vines, right. Tokai Fiolano that were planted by... They were out there. ...came here, and, you know, in the, t- in the early 1900s, and... And that that was just just fascinating. It was it was too good to be true. Yeah. So you make these very clean and pure wines. You know they're crisp with good acidity. Um, I, I read somewhere you said that the style can obscure a wine's inherent voice. I looked at that and I go, "Wow, that's beautiful." Then my next thought was, "I don't know what that means." Then my next thought was, "Let me ask Dan." <laughs> so what do you mean by style can obscure a wine's inherent voice? Um, that that is really just a, a, a reflection of what I believe to be what we understand as terroir or what we want to believe terroir is, and you know style. If Napa Valley has a, a, a what I call the modern classic Napa Valley style, which happens to be you know this big, rich, delicious you know um, wine that has a tremendous amount of fruit flavors and kind of suppleness and to the palate and generous in all its forms. That may that may be more of a, a Napa Valley style than it is necessarily an Oakville style or right. a Tokolone style vineyard in Oakville or you know so it, it, when you get down to the micro micro level of it I think style is more of a macro thing and and terroir is more of a micro thing and and I think style sometimes trumps terroir and I think we have to if you want to be true to your your craft and your trade the best opportunity is to to kind of give the voice. Uh, of where of your place because that's again that's the, those are the those are the things that got me interested in wine. Well said, and now I understand it. All right, let's talk about Band of Vintners a little. Uh, Jason, tell me how the Band of Vintners came about because it's an interesting project. There's interesting people, and the objective and the end goal is you know interesting too. Give me a ramp up to how this thing came about. Yeah, um, so Band of Vintners is really the impetus of uh, a tasting group uh, that the guys have been uh, a part of for years. Uh, I'm actually the newest member to that group. Uh, they've been meeting for plenty of years before uh, I really became a part of it, and uh, I knew everyone that was part of the group individually, uh, was friends with some of them, hung out with a bunch of them, and uh, when they invited me to become part of the group, uh, you know, we moved along with the tasting group uh, doing a year in specific regions. And, uh, you know, after the tastings were always finished, we would uh, potluck. Everyone would bring food. We'd sit around and consume uh, the rest of the bottles of wine that were left from the tasting. People would always bring other wines to share, uh, either on theme or not. And uh, we'd, we'd talk. I mean, almost just like, uh, you know, Dan's meetings that we'd have about the Cabernet, we would do that within our own group. And I think over the years what we sort of realized is when you looked at the wines that everyone in the group was either producing or selling, uh, that was Cabernet. I mean, the least expensive bottle of wine of Cabernet was around ninety bucks. Right. Typical and in Napa, almost five hundred dollars was on a state. Right. 
And, you know, knowing that we have the access to fruits and to uh, the connections that we have, that it made sense for us to do something together more on the value side of that. Because, you know, Cabernet doesn't have to be for Napa what it's become. Uh, you know, this really expensive thing that only the wealthy and the better off have an opportunity to really try. Right. And wine is for everybody, and wine is, you know, to, to be shared. And we really just wanted a bottle of wine uh, that we'd be proud of that, uh, you know, punched above its weight, so to speak, that uh, would be at an accessible price point to most people. So give me some visuals and background. So you'd pretty much meet at someone's house. Everybody would bring a little food. Everybody would bring different bottles of wine. I mean, how, how, what were you literally doing when you were together? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I can. Uh, I think the group changed a little after I joined. Uh, not to uh, scared people away. Take anything away from it, what it was before. But uh, uh, my wife and I have a very large table, and we don't have kids. So we were it started hosting more of the, uh, the events at our house, the tastings. Right. Um, I have a pretty deep cellar compared to most other guys in the group, as well as access to a lot of wine that I buy for other people. So um, I think the tastings became uh, a little uh, more uh, in-depth and sometimes with much more expensive wines uh, because, you know, I've bought them at older price points and were able to uh, bring them in. But, yeah, I mean, we would say to, when I first joined the group, we were a year in the Rhone. And the first tasting I went to, if I remember correctly, was a tasting of uh, Crow's Hermitage wines, actually. Nice. Um, and, you know, I believe uh, Cameron Hobel, who's part of the band, uh, uh, was setting that one up. It was a dance house, and yeah, I mean, email goes out. Uh, back when it was a, uh, you know, we were doing more focused a year in. Uh, you know, we knew what the theme was coming in, and everyone would uh, throw in what food they were going to bring, whether appetizers like meat and cheese or a main or, or whatnot. Yeah, right. everyone would show up. It would be very educational tasting group. Usually, that was researched on ahead of time to, um, you know, really have specifics about the wines and the regions. And this was fun for me because, uh, you know, coming from my background, I was pretty familiar with most of the wines and most of the regions and already had a lot of the educational background uh, for a lot of these European uh, regions of which we were tasting through. So for me, it was always really kind of fun to uh, do this with winemakers because yeah. winemakers in some ways taste wine extremely differently. Totally. Uh, you know, they're looking for faults. They're looking for winemaking styles, whereas I look more for typicity and for... Uh, you know, deliciousness, if you will. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we would do these tastings, and once the tastings were complete, and we sat around and would talk about that, and then we'd throw the food in the oven, heat it up, and uh, that's when, yeah, we'd sit down with uh, those wines and, and have these different conversations about either wines of the world or uh, other places or about once again right in our backyard in Napa. All right, so I want to get into the process, but I wanted to ask you, you know, of course, high-quality wines can be delicious and affordable. Um, you know, I get the delicious part. I mean, Dan, you know how to make delicious wines. Um, you know, and all you guys are pros. But I guess the question is, is before we get into the process, how do you guys keep this wine delicious and affordable? Because I think the objective was to turn out to the market a delicious wine that wasn't just another trophy. So w what was the thought and the process in getting it to market at a reasonable price? Well, I think the, the, the good thing that we're, we benefit from in Napa Valley, and I, I can say this for the, almost the entire state of California, is that the quality of wines being made here is second to none. The, the deliciousness of the, poten the potential for deliciousness of the wines made in California are second to none. Um, so that was kind of in our favor, and you can see that at a multiple price levels. As Jason said, it doesn't need to be five hundred dollars to be delicious, right. and and he has more experience with that as a sommelier with that range of price points than any of us. So it was really important to us to get his kind of stamp of approval when we were thinking about wines on the quality and, and style and the flavor side. Um, but at the same time, your, your question is really important because how can we find the right wines and the right wine grapes at the right price points um, to put it in bottle? And, um, you know, I think that, that when there's seven guys in a room who are eight guys in a room, we're in a tasting group together, uh, we have eight access points to relationships throughout the Napa Valley. Yeah, a lot of them overlap, but they spread very wide. So, you know, we're this is a community that is incredibly open on the production side, so we're always talking to each other about um, where to buy grapes or 
who's starting a project and where I can find, you know, this, you know, old vine tokai friolano or, or kind of rare Rebola Jala or organic Cabernet or, you know, mountain Merlot. Like, we all ask each other these questions, um, and, and it's part of our daily lives to kind of ask around and help each other find that stuff. So, so we felt like we had an opportunity to, to exploit that a little bit, um, to, to create this, this product, this brand that was not only delicious because the environment provides us that, right. but also the access to, um, you know, to, to, to use our network to, and, and take advantage of that access. And that's, that's been our great success in the, in the first couple of years we've been together doing this. So there's enough quality juice at a reasonable price and you guys being steeped into the market know where to find it, right? 100% accurate. All right, so yeah. let's talk a little about the process, how this stuff gets to the bottle, um, sort of beginning to end. Um, you got seven, eight guys in a room. A bunch of them are winemakers. Some of them, you know, are sales, marketing. You got a good mix of people. You got sources all over the place. Um, how does this thing, I'm staring at a bottle right here. How does the process start? Um, you don't even have to go back to the first vintage, but when you're thinking about the current vintage or the next vintage, um, tell me how this thing comes to market really from beginning to end. Well, I'll tell you what my biggest fear is, <laughs> and this is, our, this is our third vintage. My biggest fear is whether or not Jason's going to like it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, because that is, you know, for, for a number of reasons. He's one of the best tasters. Um, just because he's an MS and, uh, and he worked for he has, Thomas Keller? Big deal. <laughs> and, and I just want to make sure that if, if we can sell it to Jason at his level of, uh, take, away the, take away the Master Sommelier title, just at his level of, uh, of understanding wine, then I think, and, and, and enjoying wine, and I've seen Jason drink $15 bottles of wine with as much pleasure as he's drank $1,500 bottles of wine. And that, if we can reach that, then we know we've hit a home run. And that, so that's been my objective um, as a kind of like the, the kind of the, the, the shepherd of, of, the sh- of the sheep in this organization right. um, and bringing people together. Um, and that's, uh, that's number one. So once you start with that, um, then, I turn, then it's all turned over to the production team. And that's, uh, you know, we have three great winemakers on, uh, uh, in the band. And, you know, Stéphane Vivier has taken the, taken the lead um, to well, kind of... I think we consider you one, Dan. Maybe four. <laughs> um, yeah, that was last year <laughs> that I was uh, I that Dan, I, got, I was bestowed with some greatness. What have I done lately? I don't know. Dan, um, I don't see you sitting by idly, but whatever. Oh no, I've 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 taken a, I've taken a you know, if, if anything, I'm a consultant in this project <laughs> as a right. winemaker. I'm, I've finally reached the, the Philippe Melka like level. Right. Um, <laughs> no, we've. Uh, it's truly. It's like I've. I mean, I've such a. I've. I've admired the guys who are in this project for years and and their winemaking expertise and to see them come together and you know I agree with you. You said it, Sam. Seven people coming together and making something. We have not had a problem with putting the wine in bottle. We've not had a problem with production that, decisions that are being made. We've all like we've. It's been lockstep and it's it's kind of it's strange and awkward that the production side of it has has really turned out to be the easiest thing um, in this whole process. Right. Um, but go, and, uh, and, uh, and I'll, turn, I'll turn it over to Jason because he's got the hard part. He's, like, he's literally, if, if Stefan Vivier is our, our, our head winemaker, Jason's our, our voice to the, to the entire nation and the world. We're, we're distributed in um, four countries. We're distributed in you know, over 15 states. Um, so he's a kind of the voice and handles, uh, right. handles that conversation. So I can turn But Jason, before we get to that, um, obviously through all your connections that you mentioned, Dan, you source the grapes. There's an eye towards guys that grow grapes with sustainability in mind, right? I mean, there's a mindset to what you're making here. True? Sure, it's true. But, I mean, you have to, I mean, the, the facts don't lie. I mean, only 6% of the world's grapes are certified organic. Um, so we have to be mindful of that. I think, uh, you know, Napa Valley, I think a lot of people search for sustainability and organic farming, and they do it more than other wine regions, so we're very fortunate to that, to that end, um, that we are working with some of the highest quality grapes that are made into wine um, due to the, the sources and resources that we have. Um, and, yeah, I mean, and we try our best to be as... Uh, as sustainable as possible. Right. I, don't, I don't really know how to... If you were in the Loire, it'd be easier. I understand what you're saying. I mean, you kind of have to play with the hand you're dealt with. 
you know, in front of you, and that's Snap-It to some extent. Um, so the wine is made and bottled in Napa. Is it all Napa grapes? Yes, currently at this moment, yes. Okay. Um, and you said Stefan is making the wine currently. Um, he's sort of the lead winemaker? That is correct. He, uh, he, he cohorts with um, Mark Peremsky and Barrett Anderson, uh, two respected winemakers right. in their own right for Cabernet Sauvignon. Right. And, um, so, but Stefan takes the lead, and they do blending sessions together um, and kind of come up with the final, final, final. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question, then we're going to take a break. We'll come back. We'll get into some uh, more stuff. Um, we'll taste the wine. Um, what, Jason, what are future plans? I mean, is it easy? Are you going to be able to keep the band together? Um, do you feel like you want yeah, more I, I, you expand know, offerings? Band, we really haven't had any issues uh, so, so far with uh, the operation of the business, the, the clash of seven personalities. Uh, everything has worked really well. Uh, you know, I think we'll always be able to continue and put a, a great product out. I think that what the, the interesting thing will be will be what will happen with production, of course, because right. uh, the one thing that I've you know, said to these guys since day one, and, and Brennan, who's a sales and marketing VP for uh, uh, Folio Partners, who's on the marketing side as well, has always said, you know, we need the quality. It's not worth making larger production if quality goes down. So. Right especially moving into you know, vintages like 17, where, of course, we have the fires. Right, uh, tough year. You know, it's, it's just always that sort of challenge of what's, uh, what's in front of us. You know, right. we may have the desire to move this brand to 10,000 cases, but, at, you know, it's really only what the, the market will sustain for the quality and what, what, you know, what fruit we can get and what we can, we can do with that. And so that's, I think, kind of the, the challenge. But I think that, you know, with seven of us, and uh, that we'll be able to overcome that. And, of course, we'll have our ups and downs from a quantity standpoint, but as long as that quality stays true, right. so um, quality I, think is that, king. I think we'll continue to succeed. What, um, two questions. Are you basically, to date, selling what you're making? You're, you're able to get it out to the market and sold? There's not a warehouse with a crap load of this wine uh, somewhere? I mean, you know, we're not a, a cold massive brand where, of course, we release the wine and it's gone in the second, but uh, we started our, our 14 minutes with uh, around uh, 1,600 cases, moved to uh, 3,200 uh, roughly with the 15 vintage, and we just bottled uh, around 5,000, a little over 5,000 cases nice. in 2016. Nice. So, so far, uh, you know, I'll use the 15 as probably the best example because the 14 was the first vintage and obviously came out at a time that wasn't probably great when we would have planned to have done it just because it was, you know, the first vintage. So the 15. We released it right on schedule uh, for when we wanted to, and we were able to sell through that whole vintage, uh, actually almost pumping the brakes at the very end just so that there was market continuity uh, of wine and we weren't running out in any of the uh, market. Right. So um, that was 3,200 cases. Of course, we now have uh, 1,800 more cases uh, this year to go. But um, continuing to open up new markets. And, oh, don't uh, worry. After, this, after this show, it'll fly off the shelves. Um, exactly. Do you like do you have plans to expand the type of offerings, or you're going to stay with you know that one cab, the consortium, for now? You know, I mean that's a, <laughs> a great question because we ask ourselves that uh, monthly, uh, almost every case years before us. Even if Ison shows up, we don't talk business in front of them. Um, <laughs> we uh, we always sit and, and discuss that. You know, do we move into a Sauvignon Blanc? Do we move into a Chardonnay? Do we move into I mean, hell, we have an amazing Pinot Noir maker with Stefan. Right. Do we, make, do we move into Pinot? Uh, do we do a, a red blend that we can put together at even less price than what the consortium is at? So we, we do have that conversation. Uh, we haven't come to uh, any unanimous uh, conclusion of what we want to do. Uh, I think, you know, we're really trying to still establish this brand. I mean, there's many more markets we could open uh, with it and sort of get that momentum moving with right. it. And uh, once we've done that, I think, yeah, that the possibility of doing that is, uh, is there. I, mean, I guess the, you'll the know when it, talent the access to do it, so. when it feels right, you'll know. All right, guys, we're exactly. going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, a few more questions. I have a thing called the wine list where I ask my guests a bunch of wine questions. I'm always curious about what you guys are drinking and thinking. So I want to buzz through that. And then I got an open bottle of consortium here which I want to taste on the air and, you know, get your uh, 
sort of background and descriptors and all of that. Um, we're talking to Dan Petrosky and we're talking to Jason Heller. Both of them are part of the band of Vintners and they're making a uh, affordable, delicious Cabernet-based wine called Consortium. You're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be back in a minute or so. Maybe you're looking for a coat for yourself, or you want a bold look for your staff. You might even need a new style for your restaurant, whether it's modern, industrial, or farm-to-table. Whatever you're looking for, Happy Chef has got you covered. Their wide variety of chef apparel and products are perfect for teams of all sizes and styles. And with the industry's easiest custom embroidery, you can add your logo, name, or fun artwork to many of their other products in minutes. Here's what you do. Visit happychef.com and choose from their incredible selection. With only a couple clicks, you can customize many of their products to personalize your look. Right now, they're even offering free custom logo setup on all orders over $150, a $95 value totally free. Visit happychef.com now to order your free 2018 catalog featuring new styles and incredible comfort. Happy Chef, the perfect style, whatever your recipe. All right, we're back. We're back with the Grape Nation. We're talking to Dan Petrosky and Jason Heller. They are part of a group of seven, eight guys called the Band of Vintners that annually bottle a delicious, affordable Cabernet-based wine called Consortium. Um, Dan, you got into this before, but I just want you to get into it a little more. Um, And... Uh, I think it's important to you, and and we talked about it a little. You've been sort of critical of the local wine industry in California and asked why Napa has not made a full commitment to organic farming. Um, You know, that's a tall order, and it's not happening. Um, What what do you see the future bringing for these type of changes? Uh, Sam, as you know, I'm a New Yorker, so I'm quite cynical, um, okay. <laughs> very pessimistic. Okay. Um, so whatever I You're say, about right. you have to understand that. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's true. I just, I mean, I mean, I care, I care about this industry, and I care about the the surroundings and the land around me, and, and I think about my time living in Italy, and 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 a lot of it had to, a lot of it had to do with farmers who farm their land, who who live on property, and they they wonder, you know, the inputs that they're going to put in the uh, in their soils or on their grapes that they consume on a daily basis uh, in their homes because they drink their own wine um, and their children grow up running around the property and I and I, I worry about that and look we there's a lot of you know incredibly you know sincere thoughtful amazing farmers here in California and, and Napa Valley and and everyone no one does anything um, with malicious intent I mean I'm not saying that at all I'm just saying that right. I just think if you're, you know, I do think we have a lot of hubris here in, in Napa Valley, and we should. I mean, to be great, you have to be, you have to be proud, and you have to be arrogant, you have to kind of like do the right thing based on your, on, on, on your talents and your skill sets. And I just wish that we can lead the world. And that's what I'm talking about here. I wish we can lead the world, and if we're going to be the best, we should be the best at farming first. And then we can be the best wines, and then we can be, you know, the best marketers, and then we can be, you know, the best experience of hospitality. And then like, all those things that we aspire to or may say in passing that we already we are, let's, let's really take it to that next level. And, I, and, I, and that's a challenge I put out there because, I, I mean, everything I want to do with my life, I'm, I'm not going to settle for second or third or fourth place. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to kind of really lead in, 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 in the future of Cabernet, which is the future of Napa Valley, right. um, and the future of a very globally recognized brand, we can lead, and right. why wouldn't you want to be a leader? And so I just wish people would come together with that kind of with that kind of thought process and and that passion. And and then, but you know it's hard. I mean, it's hard. Well, listen, that. I hope we see some change in our lifetime. You know, with people, you know, a buddy of yours like a Steve Mathiasen, and there's other guys out there. You know, little by little, you guys wield you know some credibility and influence, and you know. You don't have to be pessimistic. I think you have to be patient at this point. But I think you're spot on, and I think, you know, Napa should be held to that. 
um, like other, you know, regions and everything. Um, so I do agree with you. All right, I want to ask you guys, I'm always curious about uh, people's wine habits and drinking. So I want to ask you a bunch of questions on my wine list, and then we're going to end the show drinking a little uh, Band of Vintners. So we'll be able to get back into that and talk about the blend and the winemaking and all that. But I got five questions for each of you. Let's buzz through them quickly. Uh, you don't have to elaborate. So the first question, and Jason, you answer first, and then Dan. I always ask everybody, what are you guys drinking now? What are you trying, experimenting with? What's on your table? What's interesting you? What do you got, Jason? Uh, I mean, I, I honestly, I drink a lot of a lot of red and white burgundy and a lot of Nebbiolo with age on it. Uh, I mean, I love to taste everything all over the world. I love drinking Italian whites that uh, age pretty well, such as uh, you know Fondina and Greco and Giannabellino, right. things Dan. like that. But uh, I am pretty kind of traditionalist when it comes to what like my true true loves are of wine. I mentioned old Napa Cabernet. Right. So. Give me, give me one old Napa Cab that stands out to you besides the seventy-four Heights. Besides uh, the seventy-eight Diamond Creek. Seventy-eight Diamond uh, Creek. Amazing Sixty-nine Chapelet. You know, some of the better, uh, right. better older ones I've had. Dan, are you as fancy as uh, Jason? Tell me what you're drinking now. Um. I just got back late last night from uh, four days in Bordeaux from Femur, and I drank a lot of Cabernet and Merlot. So Bordeaux is uh, top of mind right now, and it's, uh, it's close to my heart as well. Some of my best drinking experiences with wine has been um, with a bottle of Bordeaux. So, um, you know, Bordelais grapes, Cabernet. Were Cabernet you drinking uh, smaller chateaus, or you were drinking some of the, the, you know, the bigger name stuff or a little bit of everything? Oh, a little bit of everything. I actually okay. spent a lot more time on this trip um, drinking non-classified growth, um, drinking wines that are in that uh, 15 to $25 U.S. price range, and I, I found a tremendous amount of pleasure in that. I, I was just going to say there's great value in that area. Do you have any one to mention? Um, do I have any one to mention? I, I can probably mention a lot. <laughs> All right. Uh, two, um, give me one. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, let me see here. Uh, checking, checking my mental notes. I was doing about 150 wines a day. Jesus, so. <laughs> Dan. Um, like a normal uh, blending session. Yeah. <laughs> no, there was there was a there was a fair amount of them. Uh, you know what? I may hit you off air, and you yeah, know, we we post all these answers on social. It would be fun if you think about a few accessible wines, you know, in the smaller chateaus. All right, this is the silliest question of the bunch, but I'm always curious. Jason, favorite wine and food pairing. Uh, you got one? I am the worst sommelier because of this, because I believe in you should drink whatever the heck you want with what you eat. So Amen. We'll uh, leave it at that. I mean, for, yeah, for me, it's, you know, if I feel like drinking a certain wine and my wife is making a certain type of food or, or uh, we're going out to a specific type of restaurant, I don't care. Yep. I, 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 I listen, that's reasonable. Dan, agree, probably, but do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Favorite wine and food pairing is, is uh, oh, man, there's a lot as well. Um, I, I prefer, I, lo- I, I think, honestly, I hate to say this, but Tokai Fiolano is probably the best pairing wine um, that I know. So what's um, a classic food for that? Because of its, you know, it has a bit of the, 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 the weight and viscosity of a heavier wine and uh, has the freshness and the salinity of the Mediterranean. So it can go across everything from salads to seafood to, um, to a heartier dish, kind of some of the, you know, some of the, the lighter meats, um, you know, kind of veals and lambs. And, nice. And, uh, so Tokai, I, my, one of my favorite pairings is Tokai and venison and, and Tokai and lamb. That's what I'm looking for. I don't think anyone, uh, I've done almost 70 shows, nobody's ever said Tokai and venison, so you get that. All right, you guys will kind of leave, well, answer whatever you want. I, I ask everybody without, you know, picking a favorite or incriminating anybody, but do you guys have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? And, you know, I'm looking for places that have great attention towards wine, you know, knowledgeable people, good service. Um, does anything, you know, really jump out at you, Jason, either in Napa or in your travels? Well, you know, I'd actually love to get a shout-out to Napa because we have a uh, brand-new place that opened up uh, recently. 
uh, near the new Archer Hotel in downtown Napa called Conklin. Conklin? Uh, Conklin is this uh, great wine bar, uh, restaurant. Open Jason, by, spell uh, it for uh, me. I actually named uh, Matt Stamp and his uh, partner, Ryan Stetton. Okay. And, uh, you know, you want to talk about educated staff. I mean, every all the waiters are actually sommeliers that came to work there as wait staff. So everyone in the place uh, has amazing knowledge about wine. And, of course, you have Matt and Ryan uh, on the floor. Matt, a font of knowledge, and Ryan, a uh, hospitalian. There's, you know, the day dies. So I really love to give those guys a shout-out for what they're doing and uh, for the great selection and education that they're actually bringing uh, to the Valley, to uh, wine of the Valley and of other regions. Jason, spell it for me so we have it right. Uh, so Complin is C-O-N-P-L-I-N-E. Okay. Like Compline. Right. Good uh, reco. So if you're out in Napa, Dan, you have uh, anything? I know you've been in at a lot of places. A lot of places are very loyal to you, but is there a place you go into and you go, "Wow, these guys are just doing it right"? Oh, definitely. I'm. I'm. You know, I always consider myself as a wine drinker first and a, a winemaker second. Um, so I love going and learning. So I think Jason hit the nail on the head with Compline, but um, also in Napa Valley, um, one of my favorite destinations for um, great conversation about wine and having great old Napa's press restaurant at uh, the home of Scott Brenner. Right. Um, and then when I want to get my, my Nebbiolo fix, um, and I can just head down to San Francisco, and probably one of the most intelligent, smartest, youngest Psalms who knows anything more about Nebbiolo than majority of people in the United States is, uh, is John Paolo Petrolini, um, whose family owns Zaccarello and his, uh, his offshoot second, kind of second restaurant called 1760. Um, it's always great to, to, to drink with him um, and his restaurants. So that's kind of like my local, my local go-to spots. Now you were in New York for, you know, you were running and gunning hard for four or five days. You got a New York? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, for the, the last meal of my life will probably be at Blue Hill. Um, yeah. If, if I'm fortunate enough to be able to get there. Yeah. But, um, special place. but I do. I mean, I, I, you know, my wife joked around. It's like that. Myelino is my office when I'm in New York. <laughs> uh, it's open all day, and 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 you always have. You can have. You can have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I almost. I did that on my last trip. Um, and and you know from. From the days of Jeff Kellogg to uh, to Jenny today is yep. doing some uh, incredible work and educating the world on, on the greatness of, uh, of, of, of Nebbiolo. I, I agree. I don't think I've ever been to New York and not dine there. Yeah, I was just there. Uh, I was Michael Cruz was doing a sparkling wine tasting at Mayolino. That was fun. All right, two more questions. Let's buzz through them. Jason, favorite all-time wine? You got one, two, you know, just one for now? 1959 DRC Lacoste. Had it twice, hands down the best one I've ever had twice. Dan, Jason is very fancy. What about you? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, man, I, I, this is a tough one. Well, it doesn't have to be, you know, what, what's in your mind now? Um, you know, my, again, I mentioned my, uh, Blue Hill being my last, uh, my last meal. So what would um, you drink possibly there? Possibly my last wine would be a, a Giuseppe Mascarello Mon Privato. See, that's a great choice. All right, last question, and I think you guys are uh, qualified to help me with this. I ask everybody this um, because I don't have you guys live in the studio. I get very lonely, so I ask my son Benjamin and his friend Brian to sit here with me. They're in their mid-late 20s. They're making some money. They want to bring good wine to a party or to a dinner, but they don't want to spend a ton of money. So... Each of you, give me your best wine recommendation. It could be a category. It could be a region. Uh, it could be a specific wine for around 15 bucks and up. Jason, give me a red and a white. Uh, I mean, so for me at that price point, uh, I mean, a region, I probably look at the Loire because of the diversity of the, uh, the wines coming out of there from, of course, sparkling and, and still to sweet, but also red and white. So, uh, so I agree. They cover the whole range. What was that? They they co- Loire covers the whole range, red, oh, white, exactly. sp- yeah. Uh, it's you know hard to beat, and there's wines at every price point. Even the most expensive wines, if you check out things like Clos are not that expensive. So right. It's easy to find great Sauvignon Blanc or, or even uh, Cab Franc at fifteen bucks and up to twenty. Right. So for red, you can get a great Cab Franc from the Loire. You can get Shannons and all that. Dan, what's your take on this? 
Um, I was really surprised Jason didn't say the whites of Alto Adige, which is um, who you know he drinks a lot of, and you can find some really wonderful values and, and Agree. purity and clarity in the wines. Um, you know, great Sauvignons and alternative varieties like Kerner and so forth. Um, so that that I think my is house wine. <laughs> those those are those are those are great price point wines, and they bring a lot of pleasure and deliciousness. Um, and then uh, I've, you know, if you want to you want to splurge and you want to you want to break the bank, and I would say Band of Vintners. Yep, I think you know we'll get to that. We're gonna great, end, great transition. Huh? We're yeah. gonna end the show uh, tasting a little wine. I um, uh, Dan, I thought um, Jason was gonna say the DRC whites because they're a little cheaper than the reds um, for value. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'm proud of him. He he, he nailed it with the Loire. All right, good choices. We're gonna post those answers um, on our social media, Instagram and Facebook. Um, we're gonna end the show with our last segment. It's our weekly wine sip. Usually we sit in the studio with you guys and sip wine face-to-face. But Michelle sent me a bottle of the 16 Consortium. So every week we taste a different wine on air. For this week, for our weekly wine sip, we're going to taste the 2016 Band of Vintners Consortium Cabernet. The wine sells for about, and correct me, 30 35 39 bucks. Am I in the right spot, guys? Uh, normally 35 to 40. Yeah. 35 to 40. Um, and w- you're talking to, you know, an audience that goes online, that podcast, so they're all over. Where where do they find these wines? Um, uh, I mean, wine re- search would probably be the easiest place. Okay. I, I mean, you know, in individual markets, there is retail presence, so there's- uh, as well as restaurant presence. I, I mean, it's... The 16 is really just rolling into the market. I, I'm in Michigan actually working right now, and I'm still uh, showing the last of the 15. Right. So uh, the 16 is just slowly getting out there now. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you know, I, technology, just wine searcher, and you'll be able to find yeah. a bottle near you. I think market. wine searcher, and, you know, if you're in a good restaurant that's wine-centric, you could always ask if they have it. All right, so um, we're going to taste the wine here. Tell me about the blend on the 16. It's a predominantly cab, but what else is in here? Um, it is. There's a little bit of Merlot and Cabernet Franc as well. I mean, okay. we've been, you know, we've been very, you know, one of the goals as we started out, and you asked about some of the, you know, the future of, of Band of Vintners, and we're always going to want to be a Cabernet-based wine from Napa Valley, and as long as we can find the proper amounts of, uh, of high-quality, good-value Cabernet Sauvignon. And um, so, you know, I don't really look to the... The, the recipe of, the, of percentages of a wine, but more of how it's complete uh, in flavors and, and, and texture. Right. So, uh, but it's, it's, it's like 92% Cabernet Sauvignon. Right. So it's what's available, but it's a cab-based wine, and the blend will vary each year. Um, all right. So we're going to take a look at it right in the studio. So it's a nice, deep, dark purple, you know, your classic Cabernet. Um, the nose... Um, you guys should know this by heart, but I'm picking up uh, a little leather, some spice. What are some of the uh, olfactory characteristics that you hear about this wine, too? I mean, I, I, from a lot of people, I would hear that it tends to have a little uh, more red fruit uh, as, you know, as well. It's, uh, you know, it's definitely not a big pound you over the head style of cab. It's all, you know, uh, cassis and like liqueur of fruit. More so sort of a freshness of red fruit. So, Jason, more red than the dark black fruits. It's a little... Well, I, mean, I think it's definitely black fruit, but I think there's this red in there's fruit with that where, you know, if it's not all black fruit and all like... Fruit, I, I, I agree. Fruit. I agree. Yeah. The, the mouthfeel is, you know, mouth-filling and unctuous, but it's not heavy, which is also a characteristic of, um, you know, some of the bigger Napa cabs. Um, the palate, let me take a sip. You guys can listen to me sip. All right, so I get lighter black fruits than red fruits. I get the red fruits. I get some cherry, you know, more red cherry than black cherry. Um, I get a little cassis. Um, but it's, it's, it's got a lot of nice restraint, but there's a lot of fruit there. What else would you say about the palate? I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, we we had the good fortune in 2016 as a vintage here in, in Napa Valley to be kind of cooler and longer, and that draws out 
it takes those fruit um, aromas and flavors you know, from that from that red that we love in Cabernet Sauvignon right. to a little bit of that darker side, maybe a little blue, a little black. Yeah, it crosses. Described a few it's of a nice flavor crossover. profiles on the palate. Yeah, and um, and that with that with that natural hang time due to weather conditions and not being forced through style, I think we have that complexity in the wine on the palate where you have those layers of, of fruit flavor and and, and color uh, colored fruits that you just described. Right. So this is the 16. Just tell me quickly, what was the 16 vintage like as far as growing grapes and, you know, getting them out on time? Was it a favorable vintage? Oh, I think it's, it's, it's one of the great vintages coming out. I think once those, once those wines, you know, we, we, the good thing about Man of Vintners is, and the reason why we can keep the price down is we try to move the wines into the pipeline as early as possible. There's not a lot of 16s on the market at this time. Right. We want to be first to market. And, and that helps us with acquiring, you know, getting, getting the, you know, the, through, the, through the channels of production and everything, and we save a little bit of money becoming, beaming early. Um, so, and the vintage calls for that. It's a very classic vintage. It has a lot of rainfall, probably was record-breaking rainfall for Napa Valley um, and for California, and had a very hot July. Um, so Verasion, you know, kind of was stunted a little bit as uh, Verasion started and we had a heat wave. And then it cooled off drastically. So when Verasion completed, we had this really cool, moderate August. And that slowed everything down, and it pumped up the grapes. Um, they started to size up. And then with them sizing up, they you know, were able to you know, not be as uh, – be a little more on the diluted side, a little bit above average yield. And that just created – and gave us the hang time you know, after that to kind of draw back down and create that complexity. Um, I truly believe it's going to be one of the, one of the great Napa Valley vintages. All right, so three things. You could buy this wine now, drink it now, and guys, you could lay it down. It'll stay in the cellar and drink well for years. Of course. Okay. It's it's made to drink, it's made to age. What give me classically what, is, uh, what the one thing it's not made to do is be Coravin. No, I, I read that because the cork is not kind to a Coravin. So that's okay. <laughs> But you want to drink the whole bottle. We're not Coravin, Coravin in this thing. We're popping this thing open, open, and we're drinking it. What? Give me some good food pairings for this. I mean, I guess the classic, you know, Napa Reds. But what do you guys see as ideal pairings? Well, I think I think that's the great thing about the wine is it's not a sledgehammer. So I think it does give you that ability to move away from your normal steak and lamb, right? Uh, and into more of your, you know, your pork and your chicken. Uh, you can gain those things more in that uh, level of food. I mean, so your proteins and where there's sure is a little fat to be able to grab onto that tannin, but it not being such a big heavyweight and it having fresh acidity to it, I think it gives you that opportunity to bring it down into much lighter foods that people wouldn't normally uh, think about with Napa Valley Cabernet. We are in Bushwick, Brooklyn at Roberta's Pizza. I think it would go pretty well with a Roberta's Bee Sting, which has a little uh, cured meat on it. And tomato sauce. I think it would pair nicely with that. Um, all right, so that is the 2016 Band of Vintners Consortium Cabernet. Um, if we want to get more information about the wine, best thing to go to the website, Jason? Uh, it is. Uh, the website's uh, a little bit uh, in the works, but it's probably the best place to find it. Contact information as okay. well. And also... provide any more information. Also, Wine Searcher, if you're looking for it. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at Sam at the Grape Nation. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. Um, you can follow us on Facebook at the Grape Nation. That's where we're going to post Jason and Dan's wine list. Uh, we'll post the wine that we tasted and some notes on it, availabilities, pricing. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby, and now you can follow hashtags. So follow the hashtag, The Grape Nation. You can follow us on Twitter at BenRuby. Um, so, Jason, the best place to find Band of Vintners is to go to the website. Um, Dan, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't feel right if I didn't ask you where we could find uh, Massacan and Larkmead. Oh, sure. Um, not a lot of retail uh, on these wines, unfortunately. Right. Very low productions. Right. But, uh, yeah, go to, go to the web. I mean, it's, I think Jason hit the nail on the head, and you said it too, Sam, with technology. Yeah. Uh, do a little wine searcher. Yep. Um, 
And before we go, I just wanted to help out some friends and read a little promo. Our friends at New York Foundling, one of New York City's oldest and largest child welfare agencies, has partnered with City Winery, the one in New York. There's also one out in Napa now. On a custom-labeled rosé blend called We Are Interwined. The wine will be released at restaurants and bars around New York City on April 30th and will be available for purchase online from May 1st through May 31st. The wine retails for about 20 bucks, and a portion of the sales will benefit the foundling. Um, look out for it and give it a try. All right, I want to thank my guests. I want to thank Jason Heller. I want to thank Dan Petrosky. They are part of the Band of Vintners. They are getting together with a bunch of other buddies, and every year they're making a Cabernet-based wine called Consortium. Um, give that a try. It's probably one of the best bangs for the buck in Napa, and you got some really great people behind it. I want to thank our engineer, Vitor, and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.